Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, we ask that your spirit would illuminate the word that you've given, the word spoken through your son Christ, and that we would find in our own hearts a receptivity, uh, a softness, a propensity to not argue, but to believe by uh, by your grace and to accept what you say in your word, whether we fully understand it or not. Lord, we can never uh, know everything you know. We can never understand everything you understand. And so help us to come today and sit uh, under the authority of your word and to believe every word of it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. We looked at this parable in depth last Sunday, the parable of the sower, It's really a parable about the varying results of seed sowing. It's a parable about the fate of the seed and what happens to it. The central point of this most famous of parables, what Jesus would say in Mark, the most important parable, is that when we sow seeds of God's word, individual results will vary. Even for Jesus. Even for Jesus, who is the ultimate seed sower. And there are so many examples we can think of, of of how when Jesus sowed seed, individual results varied. There was a different result between Peter and Judas to his three years of sowing seed into their life. There was a different result for Matthew, who was wealthy, who loved money until he met Christ and the rich young ruler who went away sad because he was not willing to give up his riches. Different results, even for Jesus himself. And so we're his followers, we're his disciples. The same will be true for us. And so last week we looked at that in depth. We looked at the the central point of this parable, which was to say the fact of varying results when we sow seeds. Or here's how the seed, uh, here's how the results will vary. Because there are four categories that the Lord gives. And that's the big idea of Matthew 13, 1 to 23. It's one big text. In this text, Jesus teaches disciples about the varying results of gospel ministry. He's preparing us for the Great Commission to come. He's preparing us for what we can expect and how these results will vary. After he gave this parable that I've just read, verses 3 to 8, it was a public parable for the crowd. After he did that, he did not give them an explanation. He did not tell the crowd what the birds represented or the sun represented or the thorns represented. The disciples noticed that something is new and different going on in the teaching of Jesus. And so they approach him privately and ask him in private, why parables? Verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables, in these comparisons? We looked at that last week. A a parable is a comparison between the known and the unknown, between the concrete and the abstract for the purpose of teaching spiritual truth. Jesus answered their question, and in answering their question about why is he giving parables, he actually answered a deeper question. He actually answered an unasked question, which Jesus was apt to do, right? We've seen how they vary. In this passage, Jesus is going to answer the question, why? Why do individual results vary? This is so critical for the disciple to understand. It is in Matthew 
13, 10 to 17, that Jesus will answer the question, why is the Messiah rejected by most, especially his own people? I mean, this is God in very flesh doing public miracles and public teaching like no one has ever heard. You would expect that his own people would embrace him. That's what they should have done, but they don't by and large. Why not? Or to or to answer, ask the question in the context of the parable, why is some soil left hard packed? Why is some soil left thorny? Why is some soil left rocky while other Soil is tilled, plowed, and ready for the seed. In Matthew 13, 10 to 17, Jesus gives us two explanations as to why the results vary. There are two. And they represent what we might call the twin towers of all of Scripture. See if you can find them as I read the text. Matthew 13, 10 to 17. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them. To you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been granted. For whoever has to him, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. There are two explanations here for the results of the varying results of seed sowing. Explanation number one is God is sovereign over man's salvation. This is our first reason for the different results. God is sovereign over man's response to God. Look at verses 11 and 12. As Jesus is explaining why parables, he says to you, disciples, this is private tutoring to you. It has been granted. It has been given. This speaks of a gracious gift. And this is what grammarians and theologians call a divine passive. The subject here of this verb is God implied. God is the one who has granted this a divine passive. You have been on the receiving end, not achieving, but receiving. God has graciously initiated something in your life to give you something you didn't have before. To you, he says to the disciples, to Matthew, to Peter, to Andrew and the others, he says to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So what has been granted? Knowledge has been granted. Understanding has been granted. Perception of truth has been granted to these disciples. And particularly, he calls it the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Mystery has the idea of, uh, of something that has been covered that is, that is then revealed or disclosed. And so when he says the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, he means that there have been some things that were not previously revealed in the Old Testament. No Old Testament prophet understood certain things. And Jesus is revealing them now in Matthew 13. Uh, He's revealing them in these parables. And we're going to go into much more detail on that next week. Exactly what he means by the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Because that, that will take us far afield today. But we'll get into it next week as we get into the next parable. But for now, what we need to understand, the focus here is this knowledge of these mysteries is something that God grants 
And in this case, to these disciples. But it's not just one-sided, is it? It's not just a granting. There's more here. Look at verse 11. But to them, to the crowds, it has not been granted. It has not been given. They have been passed over. And so Jesus is here referring to the reality of an elect and a non-elect. The chosen and the reprobate. There are some who are elect, who are chosen, and truth and understanding is granted to them graciously, and then the others are passed over. To the others, it's not granted, Jesus says. And this is at God's good pleasure. On the one hand, God in His good pleasure grants to some, and on the other hand, God in His just discretion does not grant to others. And so the, the, the disciples here get this private tutoring that I've been referring to, but the unbelieving crowds do not. The un- unbelieving crowds do not, they're not privy to this information. They're not hearing verses 10 to 17. They didn't hear verses 18 to 23, the explanation of the parable. Why not? Because it was not granted. Well, who decides? Who decides who does the granting? God does. This is what we mean when we say God is sovereign over man's salvation. God is sovereign over man's response. Sovereign means in control, ultimately. Sovereign means supreme, reigning above, ruling over. And so what Jesus is essentially saying here with these parables in Matthew 13, after he was rejected in chapter 12, after the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit by the Pharisees, what Jesus is saying here to his disciples When they say, why parables? Jesus says, I'm playing hide and seek with the truth. From those who have already heard it, but rejected it. They're getting what they deserve. Jesus is implying. I'm playing hide and seek from hard hearts. And I have every right to do so. When we talk about God as sovereign, Christ as sovereign, we're talking about rights. And so Jesus is is saying here, not only am I doing this, but I have the right to do this. It's not unjust for God to do this. So it's a very interesting passage because it answers the question that they posed, why parables? But it answers a deeper question, why are there different results? And these two answers, they actually dovetail beautifully. Because the purpose of parables is, on the one hand, to reveal, and on the other hand, to conceal. That's what he explains here in this passage. Whoever has, more shall be given, have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. I'm speaking in parables. I'm, I'm concealing truth from the unbeliever, and I'm giving more truth to the believer. The purpose of parables, then, to reveal and to conceal. God is going to reveal more truth to those to whom it is granted, and he's going to conceal truth to those to whom it has not been granted. Now, these are obviously some very deep waters theologically, so Jesus continues to explain himself there in verse 12. See, verse 12 begins with the word for. That means it's an explanation of verse 11. It's explaining what he's already said. Now, he's told us that there's a granting and a not granting. Now, in verse 12, he's going to break it down even further. Whoever has, and what he is referring to here is knowledge. That's the subject. What has been granted to know something, to understand something. So verse 12 could read like this. Whoever has knowledge, to him more knowledge shall be given. And he will have an abundance of knowledge. But whoever does not have understanding, even what he thinks he understands, will be taken away from him. So it's this idea that every Christian has experienced to to those to whom it has been granted. We've all experienced this. We start off with a certain base level of knowledge or understanding that is required to be a Christian. We have to understand something of God's nature, something of our sinfulness and sinful nature of Christ as our only solution uh, for forgiveness and eternal life. We have to know these things, hear these things and understand them. Right. And that is the beginning knowledge of the Christian life. But but you didn't stay there, did you? How, how much more do you know today as a Christian than your first day as a Christian? It's, it's leaps and bounds, isn't it? It's just this continual life of more and more knowledge, more and more understanding and perception of all of these things of the gospel. That's what verse 12 is describing. But for the unbeliever, for those who reject even what they thought they understood, 
Even what they thought they knew. As time goes on, they move into more and more darkness, more and more confusion, more and more false teaching and lies of the devil because they didn't understand the simple things. They end up completely in the pit of darkness. That's what he's describing there in verse 12. A few illustrations might help us understand this. I think of the Orthodox Jews today, 2,000 years removed from the first coming of Jesus. And the Orthodox Jews who are in Israel and other parts of, of the world, especially those we, that come to mind that our, our dear brother Gary Morris is trying to reach, this is his primary ministry. These men, by and large, have more knowledge of the Talmud than they do the Scriptures. They have more knowledge of rabbinic traditions and commentaries and oral history and oral traditions of the Jewish people than they do Isaiah 53, which is the place where Gary often takes them. Isaiah 53, this promise of a sacrificial lamb for our sins. And, 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 and he'll tell the story that so many times as he takes these Orthodox Jewish men who are incredibly brilliant men who spend 12 and 15 hours a day every day studying. That's their whole life. He takes them to Isaiah 53 and it's like they've never seen it before. We have kids in Awana who understand Isaiah 53 better than some of these brilliant Jewish Orthodox men. This is the idea here. Even what they thought they understood has been taken away from them because it has not been granted. Here's another example. Do you know that cults primarily recruit or are populated by people who were formerly in evangelical churches? Just like this one. The people that make up Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses often come out of churches that are evangelical, that are orthodox. What does that tell us? It tells us that people there were, were, they didn't receive the truth. They didn't truly believe it. And then what they thought they had has been taken away from them as they move further and further into, into away from scripture to the Book of Mormon or the Pearl of Great Price or the doctrines and the covenants and away from the truth of the Word of God. Here's another example. It would be like an unregenerate Anglican priest who is more familiar with the book of common prayer than the book of books. And this is a reality in in mainline circles, in traditional circles. You will have unregenerate people who know more about their tradition and their denomination than they do the word of God. Because even what they thought they understood has been taken away from them. So explanation number one is God is sovereign over man's salvation. God is sovereign over man's very response to the seed. In other words, God is sovereign over the soil. Let's just get right down to the the nitty gritty of this. God is sovereign over as to what condition the soil will be in when the seed lands on it. Now, this part of the sermon is a little more challenging to understand and it's certainly more controversial in Christian circles. So I'm going to spend a few minutes now uh, seeking to prove this to you by the word of God. And I won't need to do this on the second explanation because it's more um, readily acceptable. So let me just show you this in several places. And we're going to begin by saying the fact that God is sovereign over man's salvation is not new in the gospel of Matthew. So go back to chapter 11. And this sermon's already been preached, so I'm just going to read these verses. In Matthew eleven twenty five, we see this truth that I'm talking about this morning highlighted by Christ. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Granted, not granted. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. God's discretion. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. So again, verse 27 tells us we're talking about knowledge, salvation knowledge. We're talking about salvific understanding of God in Christ. And Jesus says he too is sovereign with the father. No one knows the son. No one knows Jesus in a saving way. No one is a Christian ultimately in a saving way unless the father and the son chooses to reveal this. 
wills to reveal him. So God is the gatekeeper then of his own salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. And God owns it and God gives it and grants it to whomever he desires at his discretion. And he has a right to do so because he is God. We are not. We are creatures dependent and deserving of hell. And so God can give his salvation to whomever he wants. And the creature can't talk back and answer back to God. So this is not new in Matthew. Jesus has already spoken of it. And it's not the last time we'll see this in Matthew. Turn to chapter 16. Matthew 16, verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Blessed, granted, Simon. Judas is standing right there. Judas has heard it all. Judas has seen it all. Judas hears this answer that Peter gives, representative of the twelve. Of course, Judas uh, was always the one who would betray him. And Jesus says, Simon, you didn't come up with this on your own. Uh, No brilliant teacher opened your eyes to this because of their brilliant apologetics of the things of the Christian faith. No, ultimately, your ability to say that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, came from my father. My father specially, particularly, powerfully revealed this to you. God is sovereign over man's salvation. All right, this is not only uh, not new in Matthew, not the last time in Matthew. It's not the only place we find this truth in the Gospels. Go to John chapter 6. So now we expand our search to the Gospels. And I'm just giving you a small sample of all the various places we could go. But John chapter 6 is very pointed, very clear. Beginning in verse 41. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. John six forty one. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. The all there is not each and every person that ever lives. The all is referring to everyone who would be a believer. And the, the, the body of Christ, the followers, the disciples, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. There's both sides of it, right? There's the negative and the positive. And then turn over to the same chapter, verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh contributes nothing. The the flesh benefits, brings no benefit to the table. The Spirit gives life. Not the Spirit in the flesh gives life. Not the Spirit in the person brings regeneration. No, the Spirit by himself gives life. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you, look at this carefully, verse 65. For this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. 
No one can come to Christ. No one can believe in Christ. No one can repent of your sins. No one can become a Christian unless it has been granted him from the Father. I'm always puzzled as to why certain verses of the Bible are known and loved and others are neglected and ignored. Why is John 3.16 so popular and John 6.65 is hardly known? Aren't they all God's word? Isn't it Jesus speaking in both cases? Isn't it wonderful truth that sets us free in both cases? And yet one, the world practically knows, and the other, the other, it's, it's hard to find a Christian that knows it. For this reason, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. It's not the only place in the Gospels then, nor is it the only place in the New Testament. So now let's expand our search to a few verses in the New Testament. Let's go to Acts chapter 13. So just here's where we're going. A couple in Acts, a couple in Romans, and one in Ephesians to just finish out uh, this proof texting of God's sovereignty and man's salvation. Acts chapter 13 and verse 48 Context is Paul's missionary journeys. He's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles because the Jews are hardened. They turn him away. He leaves the synagogues and he goes out into the highways and the byways with the gospel to tell the Gentiles that Jesus is their savior, to tell the Gentiles that there's one savior for the whole world. Okay. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. When the pagans, when the all the nationalities heard this glorious good news, they were so elated, they were so excited, they're praising and glorifying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look at the rest of the verse. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Who believed the gospel? As many as had been appointed? Who did not believe the gospel? Those who were not appointed. There's an appointed and a not appointed. There's a granted and a not granted. And the clear implication is the ones who are appointed are the ones who believed. And they're the only ones who believed. Because they had been appointed. Ordained is what that word means. It had been decreed by a sovereign God in eternity past. That when this Gentile hears the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, they will believe. All right, look over at Acts chapter 18. And verse 9, again, Paul's missionary journeys, and he's come to the city of Corinth. And to Corinthianize meant to fornicate. It was a horrible city. It was a pagan city. They had no Christian witness until Paul brought it there. It's part of the Great Commission. Corinth is a place of immorality. Corinth is a place of pagan worship. Corinth would be hard, uh, rocky soil. It would be thorny soil. It would be hard-packed soil to the gospel. Paul would meet resistance. Paul would be persecuted there. Even the the church that would spring up would be a, a church that would really struggle because it was so infected with its own culture. And so something incredible happens in Corinth. Look at verse 9. This didn't happen that often in the life of Paul, at least in recorded scripture. The Lord said to Paul in the in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. That's great commission language, isn't it? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you, Paul, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. <laughs> there was an elect people there that haven't heard yet. They haven't believed yet. They're not regenerate. God is not, Jesus is not saying, oh, there's a church over there with 3,000 people. They're going to love you, Paul. Go be their pastor. No, he's saying, Paul, I have people in this city. I know who they are. I possess them. They are mine. I have granted already, Paul. Just keep on sowing the seed. Keep on preaching. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. And that seed will fall on fertile soil because God is sovereign over the soil. He has his people. Look at Romans chapter 9. Speaking of Paul, his masterpiece, 
The book of Romans, chapter 9, verse 18. After speaking about Pharaoh, he says in 9.18, So then God, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. God has mercy on whom he wishes or wills or desires, and God hardens, judicially hardens, whom he wishes, wills, or desires. And I promise you it lines up with those appointed, not appointed, those granted, not granted. This is the Bible's way of describing the same two groups of people. Look at Romans 11, verse 5. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. A remnant according to the the choice or the election of grace. Here is Paul reminding his Jewish and Gentile readers of Romans that even though as we go into synagogues and most of the Jewish people there say no to Christ, and even if that's continued now for 2,000 years by and large, there are many Jewish converts, but the great, great majority of ethnic Jewish people have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Even though that be the case, Paul, you need to know, reader, you need to know there has come to be a present time. That, that's, that was then and it's also now. The church age, there is a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Finally, Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 6 tell us a whole lot more about this gracious choice. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, his discretion, his will, his choice to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved free gift, free grace bestowed in and through Jesus Christ, this Truth, this verse puts the amazing back into amazing grace. It's a great little book by Michael Horton that was written years ago. Why is grace so amazing? Not just because Jesus came and died for our sins. That is amazing and it is stupendous. But it's also so amazing is because God had decided to show us this grace and give us this grace before he actually created the world. Believer, you have always been known by God. You have always been loved by God. God set his love on you before creation. God set his love on you knowing every sin you would ever commit in your life. God has always loved you and will always love you. In in love, he predestined us to adoption. He wanted you as his child, as his son or daughter. He is sovereign then over your salvation. He is sovereign over your response even to him. So what do we do with this great, great truth? This first of these twin towers that stands throughout Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to the very last verse. You find this tower uh, standing in Scripture. What do we do with these truths? Well, I will say this. Do not become discouraged when you're sowing seeds by lack of response. Don't let that discourage you. Don't let that dampen your enthusiasm. Listen, not everyone is elect. You cannot change that. (laughs) Just accept it and don't become uh, discouraged. Rather, be encouraged because our only hope in sowing seeds, our only hope in evangelism and gospel ministry and mission effort and church planning, our only hope in Valparaiso, Chile is not Rodrigo. Our hope is that God has his people in that city. Our hope is that God has prepared soil and when the seed lands in it, they will understand and they will bring forth. That's our hope. Our hope is in God and God alone, not in our techniques, 
not in dimming the lights and having mood music. Our hope is not in the most smooth gospel presentation you've ever seen. Our hope is not in your ability to answer every objection that the unbeliever might have. Our hope is that God has his people. And when it is their turn to be saved, God will save them. And he uses our feeble efforts and our feeble words to do so. Or he can completely bypass us if he wants to. Every single elect person will hear the gospel. And when it is their time, they will respond. That's our hope. That's our hope for all of Christian ministry. And so we don't have to manipulate and we don't have to deceive and we don't have to arm twist and we don't have to browbeat and we don't have to be overbearing. And that's my next application. Because God is sovereign over man's salvation, don't force it. Don't symbolically get the person in the headlock, you know, and say, you are going to believe this. Okay? Don't force it. Be urgent, but don't be overbearing. When we force it, when we're overbearing, we are working against God. We're failing to recognize that this is his work. It's his salvation. So I'm praying and I'm pleading and I'm wanting to to reach and there's an urgency for sure. But I must leave the results to God. This is why we can do evangelism joyfully and not begrudgingly if we're walking in the spirit. So God is sovereign over man's response. Let's go back to our passage. In verse 13 of Matthew 13. Therefore, Jesus goes on, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. It's being fulfilled right now. Right now, he says it's being fulfilled right before your eyes. They're going to keep on hearing and not understand, keep on seeing and not perceive. The hearts become dull. The eyes don't hear the ears. The eyes are closed and on he goes. The second explanation for why results vary. The second twin tower of scripture that you find from the very beginning to the very end is that man is responsible for his blindness. God is sovereign over man's response. Man is responsible for man's response. These are the twin towers of Holy Scripture. Man is responsible then for his blindness What Jesus implies by both the reference to this Isaiah passage and his own words here is that these people have rejected clear teaching. He has been crystal clear and they have rejected it. They have spurned it. And now because you have spurned it by your own choice, you are going to get fuzzy teaching. You didn't like the crystal clear teaching. So now I'm going to put a veil over it. It's called parables. And this is what you deserve, you unbeliever. Parables then, remember, mark this, parables are a form of judgment for unbelievers and unbelief. They have turned away from the bright light of his words and the bright light of his miracles. And so he stopped doing public miracles by and large, and he began to hide his truth from them. The point of all of this is they are responsible. They are accountable. They are culpable. They are without excuse. They hear, but they don't hear. They see, but they don't see. They don't understand. It's their fault that they don't understand. Is what Jesus is saying. And these verses 14 and 15 is from Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. It's a direct quote of Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 from the Septuagint. It's very interesting. So what Isaiah experienced in his day, Jesus is experiencing in his. Okay. Now look at this in uh, verses 14 and 15. What are they hearing? They're hearing Jesus himself. What are they seeing? They're seeing Jesus himself. This is the most privileged generation in the history of the world up to this point. Right? God has come to earth and is living among man. The the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the father. The most privileged generation in the history of the world. They're hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus, but they do not get it. They completely whiff. They completely miss it. Why do they not get it? Verse 15, the heart has become dull. They have a heart problem. 
Their heart is insensitive. Their heart is cold. Their heart is dead. Their heart is spiritually dull and dead to God. And because they have a heart problem, they've got ears and eye problems. You, you see an interesting thing going on here. Heart, ears, eyes to eyes, ears, heart. Right there in the text. Meaning the problem of the eyes and the problem of the ears is sandwiched and bracketed by the heart problem. The heart of this people has become dull. And then he says, or they would understand with their heart. In other words, Jesus lays the problem at their doorstep. Jesus says to the unbeliever, you want someone to blame? Look in the mirror. Don't blame the devil. Don't blame God. All of the blame is laid at your doorstep. Because man is responsible and accountable to God for his response. This is incredible language here woven into this passage, quoting out of Isaiah. And the Jewish people thought they were hearing the word of God, but they didn't understand it. They thought they were seeing truth, but they didn't perceive it. They really can't hear. They're deaf. And look at the middle of verse 15. Look at it. And they have closed their eyes. Who closed their eyes? They did. They closed them. They have shut their eyes to the obvious. It's right in front of them and they choose to not see it. It's like saying, I choose to say the sun isn't bright. I choose to say the sun isn't warm. I simply refuse to see the truth that is right in front of me. It's because they love the darkness. They're, they're in their sin. They're dead to God. And so they love darkness and they move toward darkness and they want darkness and they choose darkness. So he's putting all of the accountability on the individual sinner here. They choose to turn away from God. And the result is the rest of verse 15. Because they have closed their eyes and done so willfully, done so knowingly, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1. They are without excuse, Romans 1. Otherwise, if they had not done this, otherwise they would see with their eyes and they would hear with their ears and they would understand with their heart and they would repent and I would heal them. If they had not chosen to do this, Isaiah and Jesus is saying, they would have repented, believed, and God would have saved them. They are 100% responsible for their response. This is so critical. This is a twin tower of Scripture. These towers stand equally strong, equally prominent, equal heights, equal foundations. They are immovable towers of all of Holy Scripture. We cannot deviate from either one. So for the non-elect, for the reprobate, their unbelief is their fault. They don't see because they have closed their eyes. Regardless of what God does, man is responsible. And since man is to blame for his blindness, God then, listen carefully, judicially blinds him further. Because man is to blame for his hardness of heart, God judicially hardens his heart further. And that's what he did with Pharaoh. Right? That's the example of Pharaoh. God hardened his heart. He hardened a hard heart. And it was a judicial act of God. In other words, judicial means he deserved it. Judicial means this is justice. This is what the sinner deserves. If you ask the question, is this hardening, whether it's Pharaoh or someone today, is this hardening against their will? Does God harden a sinner against his or her will? The answer is not at all. Not at all. It's what the rebel heart wants. It's what the sinful heart wants. The sinful heart wants darkness. The sinful heart wants sin. It doesn't want to be disturbed by the light of Christ. And so at no point is God ever hardening someone against their own will. At no point is God ever sending someone to hell against their own will. So parables then are Jesus' way of saying to his own rejectors, there will be no more light for you. I am not going to cast my pearls before swine. He told us not to do it. He's not going to do it himself. 
So number two is man is responsible for his blindness. So then what is verses 16 and 17? Verses 16 and 17 is God saying, my sovereignty will always have the last word. <laughs> Look at it. Oh, this is so good. This is for us. This is for us. But blessed, blessed are your eyes because they see. Blessed are your ears because they hear. In other words, you understand. You get it. You're so blessed. Truly, I say to you, many prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, many prophets and righteous men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Solomon, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, disciples, what you're seeing right now, Jesus in the flesh, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, disciples, and did not hear it. So this is, uh, here's my way of understanding this passage. God's sovereignty will have the first and the last word. And sandwiched in between is man's responsibility. And so God will end on this high note. The summary of verses 16 and 17 is simply this. The ability to understand is granted by God's grace alone, purely by his sovereign, unconditional choice. It's all of his own choosing. And if it is not granted, then there is no understanding. And if there is no understanding, who is to blame? Not God, the sinner. And beloved, that tension I just created in your mind is a tension that cannot be solved in this life. How can there be these twin towers, these two equal truths? God is sovereign over man's response and man is responsible for his response. I don't know. I just know that the Bible teaches both clearly and consistently over and over and over again. I want to close with three applications for you this morning. As we land the plane, (laughs) three applications. Number one, let us meditate often on how blessed we are. Verses 16 and 17. If you're having a bad day or when you have a bad day, I want to bring you back to verses 16 and 17. When you stumble in sin, come back to verses 16 and 17. Hear the words of Jesus to your heart and to your soul that your eyes are blessed and your ears are blessed. Come back to this this sovereign grace blessing and meditate on it often. This will, this will generate so much joy and humility and faithfulness and obedience. You get over yourself. It'll humble your heart and lay you low in the dust and you'll look up and see nothing but the glory of Christ as your savior and your champion. Come back to this truth often and meditate and linger there and long to understand it in a deeper and more profound way. This is a truth that's not against you. It's for you. It's not to confuse you. It's to comfort you. This truth is here not to cause arguments among Christians, but to cause Christians to be humble and to love Christ even more. Just get over yourself. Get over the fact that you had no contribution to your salvation. That salvation is of the Lord. It'll be good for your soul. Trust me. It'll be good for your soul to get over that you made a contribution to your salvation. You'll talk different. Your face will look different. You'll respond different. It'll revolutionize your life, even as a Christian. So meditate here very often. On the fact that God opened your blind eyes and God opened your ears and God allowed you to understand the gospel. Second application. There are twin towers of scripture. There is a tightrope that runs between them. And the Christian life is one of walking this tightrope between the twin towers. All right. And we need to walk back and forth, back and forth. I'm walking this direction, looking at the sovereignty of God. I get to the end, I turn around and I walk looking at man's responsibility. And I need to walk back and forth on this tightrope between the twin towers. Now, it's a tightrope. So now I've got to balance myself. I've got to balance myself carefully on the, tw- on the tightrope. I don't want to fall off on this side to man's responsibility. I don't want to fall off on this side to God's sovereignty. I am to stay on the tightrope, perfectly balanced By the word of God. Twin towers walk the tightrope. 
Number three, one more analogy for you. These are like railroad tracks. Railroad tracks are parallel. And you think of a railroad track that just goes off into the horizon, off into the distance. It just seems like it's unending. And you look behind you and you can't see the beginning of it. And these parallel railroad tracks, the the, the tracks never do this, right? That doesn't work. And the tracks don't do this. But these railroad tracks just go off, off into eternity, okay? These two truths are the tracks. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. They're laid parallel. They don't cross each other. And they don't diverge from each other. They're perfectly distanced forever and ever into the future. Right? Now, here's the, here's the application. You need to ride the railroad tracks in the car called faith. You ride in a car called faith because it's possible that even in eternity we will never fully understand this. We're going to ride this in the car called faith just like I don't know that I'll ever understand the Trinity. I don't know that I will ever understand the virgin birth. I don't know that I will ever understand fully God, fully man in one person and will be so forever. And I don't think I'm going to understand this fully. And so I ride by faith, not by a perceived desire or right to fully understand it. We ride those railroad tracks all the way into heaven. And upon our arrival in heaven, we will pass under this beautiful arch, this glorious gate into heaven. And we'll look up on the arch there. It's an illustration. Work with me. We'll look up on the arch there and we'll see the words of Jesus. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we see those and we say, Amen. I believe. I'm going into everlasting life. And we cross under that beautiful archway gate into heaven. We cross under it and we, we look back behind us and we see on the same sign on the, on the same arch, on the other side, we see the words of Jesus. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. And we say, Amen. All glory to Christ that I'm in this place. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the twin towers of Scripture that you have clearly revealed them for us to embrace by faith. That you are absolutely, ultimately sovereign and in control over man's response. And yet, Lord, in your mysterious justice, you are able to hold man accountable and responsible for his decision. We hold these in tension. We hold these, Lord, to the best of our feeble mind's ability until you might bring greater light and greater understanding, whether that be here in this life or in the one to come. We trust you with the Twin Towers, and we trust that you will help us stay on the tightrope and walk a balanced theological life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.